Hello and welcome to the Undercut Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Taylor, and we're back to preview this weekend's Hungarian Grand Prix. Joining me as ever are the goulash and Togoji wines to my hot springs and thermal spas, Jesse Billington and Timo Albers Daly. How are you both? Absolutely shattered. I feel like I've been flat out for three weeks at this point. Uh, I was at Festival of Speed. In fact, both Ellie Mae and I were both at Festival of Speed across the weekend. I came away with several videos and 5,000 photographs to edit. So been going flat out getting all that to press today. I've still got two weeks worth of work to do ahead of my holiday. I'm loving life. I'm dead on my feet. I'm loving it. It's fine. Timo, how well, are I you? I make not actually mean it. <laughs> That's about it. How are you, Ellie Mae? I'm good. I thought just before we go into what the hell has happened... Jesse, what was your favourite moment from Festival of Speed? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Uh, uh, the one that really springs to mind is probably going to be stood looking over turn one down towards the start line and um, Grant Williams pulls a huge burnout in his Mark 1 Jag and sets off up the course, so it pretty much opens the weekend, giant smoky burnout, and it is the archetypal Goodwood shot. We'll pay no attention to the fact the car later suffered a complete half-shaft failure, ejecting its rear passenger side wheel into the crowd. Thankfully, no one was seriously injured, but um, yeah, it just goes to very much encapsulate the the chaos and character that makes up Goodwood's Festival of Speed. What would you say is yours? I think mine is the 75th uh, celebrations of Porsche. Um, Yeah, I think being in front of Goodwood House and having a 917 in front of me and then Tom Christensen Christensen walk towards it and get in it, I'm never going to experience that probably ever again. So I think that that was my special moment. It's one of those completely wacky and wild events where you just keep spotting faces you recognise and absolutely jaw-dropping cars just littered about the place. You're walking through the paddocks. There's the Le Mans winning Ferrari 499P. And then over there, you've got Zach Brown's personal NASCAR, his Chevy Monte Carlo. And then you wander up there and you've got sort of a makeshift Mercedes and Ferrari Formula 1 garages. There's Sebastian Vettel's Red 5. Then you've got all manner of other things, all what's over here. You've got the Williams FW08C, the six-wheeler. Then you pop your head in here and you've got a brand new Lotus electric SUV. And it it's completely beguiling. It's completely baffling. It blows the mind. It is everything to every motorhead all at once. And absolutely loved it and hopefully we're going to get you along to the revival as well later this year we need to get that sorted out and you can experience all the same thing but very 1940s 50s and 60s and we'll dress up for it hopefully not head to toe in two coats just to keep the rain off of us fingers crossed it won't be quite as wet um i still haven't cleaned my trainers off i'm sort of going to just do that in croatia where it's going to be warm enough for them to dry instantaneously but yeah my trainers are very muddy after covering the rally stage and being stood trackside as a fiat 131 sport comes blasting past and takes me in mud but yeah Anyway, we'll move into what the hell has happened. And I think the big news that's come out since we last recorded is, of course, Nick DeVries has been dropped in favour of Daniel Ricciardo for the rest of the season at Alpha Tauri. The decision to, call, uh, to sack Nick DeVries had been done earlier than expected, especially after sim data comparisons between Daniel, Yuki and Nick were revealed. Nick did not hit the sim benchmarks that had been set by even Yuki Sonoda, and Nick was given a few more rounds to try and hit those benchmarks on track and failed to equally after the tyre test at Silverstone following the British Grand Prix, Daniel Ricciardo was looking very much on a form in the Red Bull and was posting reasonable enough times to get him onto the front row of the grid. So there's a lot to be said for Daniel's performance as much as there has to be said for the lack of Nick's performance. Equally, you've got to bear in mind that sponsors for Alpha Tauri saw Daniel as far more profitable and is seen as being very key to Alpha Tauri's rebranding. There's a chance that Daniel will also be able to develop the car and get it more sort of on track to be ahead of where they need it to be um, ahead of Liam Lawson's arrival. 
this is crucial because Liam is still very much a part of Red Bull's future and his success in Super Formula has so far exceeded expectations. Helmut doesn't want Liam's development interrupted mid-season, so he's not going to sort of drag him out of a series where he's doing well. He's learning a lot in very changeable conditions so far as from what I've seen in Super Formula series and just to bung him into a very poor Alpha Tauri uh, AT04, I think is what their chassis is called at the moment. So he doesn't want to sort of ruin what's lining up to be a good driver by simply putting him into a terrible car too early. And equally, depending on Daniel's performance post-Hungary, um, and obviously through the races that follow, Liam will be given an Alpha Tauri seat for 2024, or another seat will be found a la Alex Albon. If none of these occur, he is 100% secured in the future Alpha Tauri brand seat in 2025. So if they aren't able to get him into one of the four Red Bull seats for 2024, or another seat for 2024, Liam is guaranteed to have a drive in 2025. His name is already sort of pinned to that grid, as it were. This also leaves the door open to whatever Red Bull Junior Formula 2 produces at the top of its league this year, likely a wass of the way things are going. Red Bull is very sure that Honda wants to take Yuki with them to Aston Martin, hence why he's seemingly not part of the Red Bull seat plans. The Alpha Aston Martin and Honda deal kicks off in 2026, so there's two more seasons of Alonso there, who Honda said they would be happy to keep, but they remain open to Lance Stroll which is interesting also Helmut has mentioned that they do not have a replacement for Checo so far Checo is safe until the end of his contract however it's worth taking a pinch of salt with that they were saying that they weren't going to be sacking Nick DeVries mid-season and then didn't even get to mid-season point and sack Nick DeVries so uh, worth taking a pinch of salt when it's something being said by Helmut Marco or Red Bull Ricardo does have a natural pathway to that seat if he can perform in the Alpha Tauri Equally, I think they are very much looking to develop that car and don't want to be getting rid of a guy who's talented and experienced enough in Formula One to be able to develop a chassis. So if anyone's going to be moving up, it's almost sort of an equal split between Ricardo and Sonoda moving up to that seat next to Verstappen. Sonoda would likely benefit from spending some time in a very competitive chassis, learning a lot from Max. And equally, AlphaTauri as a team would benefit from retaining Ricardo for a further season. Albon and Norris are both apparently linked to Red Bull uh, drives in the future and Marco has mentioned that they are high on his list of drivers he would like. Marco said of Norris he has a contract with McLaren until 2025 but he is by far the strongest of the young drivers. His, his youthful nature would also suit him best to Red Bull and it's no secret that he and Max are good friends. Albon has declined in favour of Williams apparently and frankly at this point you can't blame him. Equally it would be an interesting move for Norris to go from a team that started off pretty strong and has now proven that with the right structuring in this new era, has been able to pick itself up and push itself forward. You're going to be, if you're Norris, you're going to be questioning whether or not you really want to start walking away from a team that's beginning to come good. One big takeaway from this, though, is surely axing a driver after 10 races suggests that this is as much a you problem as it is a them problem. They picked this guy very much on a whim after seeing him race one Williams at Monza last year and went, yeah, he could be good. There was a huge amount of other drivers that were sort of coming out of Formula 2 that were viable options that would have been interesting enough to take on. And yet they chose Nick De Vries, which speaks volumes about their Let's ability show this to pick. problem of, 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 like you say, their inability to pick there and why I don't think Norris or Albon, if they are any kind of serious possibility, should be even because you're just overcomplicating what doesn't need to be overcomplicated further because you've got however many junior drivers that they have. It's a lot of them. And all of them were just jumped over by Nick out of one race and it just seems a little bit of a slap in the face to all of those especially Liam Lawson who's then having to wait one or two extra years possibly to get into a seat that should have been his this year in theory um, as for Ricardo, I take your point about Yuki benefiting from being in the Red Bull and possibly by the end of the season having shown enough to deserve that but if you're Ricardo, you're going to be wanting to take the AlphaTauri seat with not a guarantee that you're going to then move up next year, but with an eye towards that, because he did say he didn't want to come back to be in a midfield team. So half the season is doable for that, but then you're not going to want to see him in the Daffetari again next year. Even if they do develop it better, it's still not necessarily going to be winning races and getting on the podium because Red Bull will let it develop close towards it, but it's never going to let it eclipse it. And but, you've seen that with Mercedes, like not going to let you. We've we've seen how that can go wrong with letting a, letting in other teams on too much of the secrets and then being surpassed. So it's this weird thing of Yuki 
was surprised he even got a second season out for Terran. Okay, he's come a bit good in that, and the car is absolutely terrible. But it's Daniel Ricciardo, Red Bull. It makes for a much stronger team up there than it would be if it was Yuki, if he can, depending on what he can do with this Alfa Tauri as well. So it just seems a more likely and a more beneficial and more popular thing for everyone if he's the one in that seat next year. It does, but at the same time, it's not his decision to make in the end. This is going to be a decision that comes no, from the higher but ups. it's something that I feel like he won't have joined Alfa Tauri without having that discussion and having some kind of possible reassurance, never a guarantee, mind you, but just some kind of yeah, there's a pathway to making this happen. You've still got to deliver everything, but we're not doing this with the proviso of keeping you in here for a season and a half. Mm. There would have definitely been this sort of concept of if you come, there is a chance you'll move up. But equally, I don't think it's a get set in concrete. And it also depends yeah, on his he's, performance. He's got to bury Iwasa in, not Iwasa, sorry, Yuki into the ground pretty much as, as quickly as he can to guarantee that. I have doubts that that will happen as well. Is the is the key thing? He's coming into a chassis he's not driven. No, I'm not saying he will. I'm saying that that's what he's got to do to maximise his chances of of making those kind of mm. discussions and that pathway into as much of a guarantee as he can. And he's got to rely on Checo, obviously not performing continuously. Mm. Equally, if he is found to be good at setting up a car and helping AlphaTauri develop the car. It's in Red Bull's vested interest, as they are essentially their sister team. They're something that they have very tight links to. It's very much in their vested interest to make that team as good as possible, because at the end of the day, it is essentially a second revenue stream for the two teams into their giant sort of melding pot of businesses that loom above them as sort of ownership. It's vested always put Checo in there next year. But would you rely on Checo to develop the car? I think given how Checo struggled depends to develop... On how it, depends on what happens with the rest of the year. Given how Checo struggled to develop a car where he had essentially the blank sheet of a very strong neutral chassis to begin with and it's all of a sudden teetered away from him, would you offer him that chance again? Would you say Red Bull have lost confidence in him given the things they've put now, especially essentially putting Ricardo in that Alpha Tower as a shot across his bowels going, buck your ideas up, Sonny. Ellie May. I don't think De Vries would have been kicked out as soon as he did if it wasn't for Danny Rick being Red Bull's reserve driver. I think if he was still at McLaren, they would have given him De Vries at least the summer. And I don't think and I don't think they would have done it so soon if Sergio was doing so well. I think we have to look at the bigger picture here. And I don't particularly think this is down to De Vries under underperforming. I think it's down to Perez underperforming. They saw Ricardo's times at Silverstone when he did the entire test and they decided he needs a drive just to get him back up and running and taking over within Formula One so that he's ready to take that second seat at Red Bull next year or even sooner. Sure, Red Bull are dominant now, but they've got less wind tunnel time and therefore have less potentially less development growth for later in the season or next year's car. If the other teams catch up to Red Bull, they may not have it as easy as they have this year with Verstappen. So they need two drivers who could perform if Red Bull want to maintain their constructors' title. And I don't think they have the trust in Yuki to do it. That's why they've brought Daniel Ricciardo back in. I think it's more the fact that Perez is underperforming rather than De Vries underperforming. There's definitely an element of both underperforming. But at this point, it, you can't rule out that De Vries was underperforming. It might not have been a key factor to it, but he was. It's it's gone on to record as being a case of he was not able to produce the times, he was not able to show the development that they're expecting of him as a driver to get closer to even that of Yuki Sonoda. And admittedly, Sonoda's had essentially two and a half seasons now in that chassis. He's used to it, he's used to the foibles, he's used to the team, he's got the edge there. But at the same time, we do have this higher expectation of Nick DeVries. He's a, a champion in a single-seater racing series that constantly touts itself as being Formula One, but electric. It's supposed to be that sort of top flight of motor racing in the same way that we'd sort of consider IndyCar on par with Formula One in that regard. Formula E thinks of itself like that, but at the moment it hasn't actually produced a champion that has proven it can go toe-to-toe with even Yuki Tsunoda in equal machinery. So it's... I think he's the only driver to come over after becoming a champion to get back into F1. So it's a slightly unfair comparison. It's an unfair comparison, but equally it does begin to build or start at least the argument of if that's the best you've got, 
Yeah. It is a bit like saying, yeah, but you've done that after one attempt at something. It's kind of like, oh, let's just. I'm not saying that it's the, the be conclusion. all. I'm not saying it's the be all end all argument. That's why I said it's very much the start of that argument. And I think that's the crucial crucial word you sort of very much ignored was it's the start of that argument that's almost to an extent going to have wider ramifications for Formula E if you really start building it that way. But at the end of the day, De Vries didn't perform. Obviously, there was a clause written into his contract that said, if you don't do good, out you go. And unfortunately for him, he wasn't able to gel with the team, gel with the machinery, gel with himself and what was being asked to him this season so far and did not perform well enough further compounded by Daniel Ricciardo doing a tyre test around Silverstone proving he could get that Red Bull onto the front row with an unknown tyre compound interesting to see whether it was softer or harder than what was being used Um, but the general consensus seems to be that one performed beyond the bounds of what was expected and one was simply getting nowhere close to what was expected of them and equally the knock-on effect that that can positively have for the team of shot across Perez's bows, developing the Alpha Towery, it was too good an opportunity for them to turn down, unfortunately. It seems a little harsh on De Vries as well, because every tweet, Facebook post, Instagram post to come out of Formula One's accounts, as well as Red Bulls and Alpha Tauri's, has been about welcoming Daniel Ricciardo back. There has not been a single post saying goodbye to Nick De Vries. So the most you been... saw it was the, the thank you from France, and that was it. And that was just a very throwaway line in the announcement of Daniel arriving in the team. Yeah. Do you think, though, it's harder for drivers to come into Formula One now? Because even if you just look at a couple of years ago, we didn't have so many like street tracks at the start of the season. We had more sort of classic circuits that drivers were almost used to from their, you know, previously being in F2 and F3. They now have to sort of go into the season with very difficult tracks that sort of have very tight limits. And if you think, Debris only crashed once. So he wasn't particularly costly. If you compare that to Yuki's first half of his first season as well. Yeah, again, the actual driving on track was by no means sort of hugely subpar. It was a long way off the pace, yeah, but it wasn't exactly financially detrimental. But it comes down to this thing of the simulator. It's just a curious thing if drivers have stayed for longer for doing worse on track in theory in terms of like they saying with the crashing and all this kind of business so it's just again i don't mind as much because we get ricardo back it just seems an odd way for it all to have happened of all the many scenarios in which we envisioned it all happening because we hoped that he would get back on the grid at some point maybe not expecting it this soon it does seem a curious way to go about it and consequently if he can't get up to speed another alpha territory then what happens to him next year? Do they bother keeping him at all? Or does they say, we're just going to fire you and we've just lose Daniel Ricciardo then completely? And it just seems oh, what a shame that would be in, in that respect. I think. But then so he's, he had his second chance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very much Red Bull's get out, get out of jail free card on that one. But it just seems, I don't know, very odd, very <laughs> interesting way of doing it. Second chances don't often come around in Formula One. I think Alex Albon knew that. And seized his by the throat when he got into that Williams and we've seen him hugely outperforming it across the seasons he's been in it which is, why, which is what I hope Ricardo does as well I'm just saying it's an interesting way of it all going of, of mm-hmm. giving him a second chance but if just by then, going back to the team you started with 10 years ago and having to prove yourself all over again when arguably you know that he is a good driver he was just an unfortunate couple of years in a, in a McLaren uh, well actually uh, I think you'll find he started with uh, HRT so yeah um, who's being pedantic doesn't matter but the fact of the matter is that Red Bull are per, would be perfectly within I think their contract rights they'll have written it in there and I don't think anyone would be surprised if Daniel Ricciardo didn't perform if they booted him out and said you had your second chance you weren't able to perform oh, no, I wouldn't be surprised at that at all it's just away a, with you. again a curious way of them going about it and to see what their end game is like they may saying bigger picture wise I think they know they've got this season wrapped up, so they've got enough scope to start playing with things. And they're experimenting, lining up for a year where they know that wind tunnel testing time is going to likely be a huge limiting factor on their development. They want to at least make sure they've got some bits that they can fiddle with this year sorted. And the thing they know they can fiddle with is driver lineups. 
again, if Daniel Ricciardo can or cannot perform, they have then still got an opportunity to look at a Sonoda. They've got an opportunity to look at trying to convince a Lando Norris or an Alex Albon or anyone across. Hell, the way it's going, the frosty relationship between Charles and Carlos at Ferrari could see one of them move to Red Bull, possibly signs back to the Red Bull camp, something he was attached to way back when, or maybe she'll give up all hope of becoming a Formula One world champion wearing the red racing suit. Isn't it? Sorry, just going back to Danny Rick at HRT. Didn't he join midway through the season of HRT at Silverstone? And now 10 years forward, he's done a test at Silverstone. And we've just had, obviously had the Silverstone Grand Prix and they're like, and now he's coming back. Uh, uh, Ricardo made his Grand Prix debut at the 2011 British Grand Prix. That's good knowledge. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> See, it does matter knowing the history, but there we go. Anyway, we'll move on from the ever-growing discussion around Daniel Ricciardo, AlphaTauri and Red Bull to Christian Lungard finally got to shave his moustache. Jiff. Interview following the car, you know why that is a big deal because he didn't decide to shave at all for this year and said he would only shave and not even necessarily this year, depending on how long this took until he won an IndyCar race. And I'm very happy to say that he managed to do that this weekend in Toronto. It was a very excellent drive. He got pole, it wasn't a pole to flag win, he had to fight for it. And there was some really great racing going on all across the pack there, including a very interesting shunt on lap one with like the last seven cars on the grid all just kind of piling into each other um but Lungard just again f2 driver very strong when he was there never really got the chance or the luck especially in his final f2 season to to make it up to f1 so it's great to see him finally succeeding i say finally he's still incredibly young but just getting into car victory under his belt and then promptly shaving his i've seen better moustaches immediately off before as he got onto the podium. So it's just an excellent feel-good story, I think, from the weekend. Yeah, I'm just having a look at the moustache now, seeing whether it was a strong one or not. It's not, not really, is it? It's not a Tom Selleck kind of strong moustache, no. No. This isn't, this isn't the new Nigel Mansell. No, no. Not even a homage, I would say, but it doesn't matter now because he shaved it, so it's all good and he's, he's freshly shaved now. But uh, it was nice to see anyway. Yeah. Timo, you've got some other interesting news from the feeder series world. Yeah, it's but kind of related to the F1 world as well. Campos High Tech and Trident team bosses have also all been asked about Andretti in the feeder series. So Adrian Campos Jr., Oliver Oaks, and Giacomo Ricci were asked by Formula Scout what they thought about Andretti joining F2 and F3. With Campos saying it's the first time he'd heard about it, but that they're more than welcome, and he thinks that they'd have a difficult time against us. But he thinks that we all think the same, so yeah, why not? Oliver Oaks was kind of saying the same thing. It should be nice. They had a lot of things in the press in the past few months and weeks. I'd say that he's always welcome to come and race here, but there are quite a few categories. And I think actually, as we know in F2 and F3, it's a credit to the quality of teams and the job Bruno's done with the championship that a team like that would come and race here. And then Giacomo was saying that they're more than welcome as well and be nice thing to have a big name in the series. As I'm sure it'd be a great challenge also for them to join us. And then was kind of half joking that maybe we should start rumour to get tried and to go to IndyCar. And it's just nice to have team bosses in a motorsport series that's so closely connected to Formula 1 welcoming the idea of another team on the grid, especially when we do have 22 cars on the grid in Formula 2 and 30 on the grid in F3 and putting it potentially another two seats in each of those, potentially three if we three actually. It's just interesting. And perhaps it comes to nothing, but it's interesting to pair of contrast their team thoughts versus what some F1 teams are saying and how welcoming they have been to that idea. So especially as we're supposed to be hearing news soon-ish, maybe about what's happening with high tech and Andretti in terms of if they'll be allowed to join the Formula One grid and if so when. So it's just because it does make sense to have Andretti in the feeder series in theory because especially with high tech doing it in reverse Andretti might then look to think oh yeah junior program let's if we're going to do it let's do it properly and we can develop it and that's a good way to get maybe some more American talent in there they fund their seats to get into F2 and F3 and potentially any other American drivers that go into F1 Academy maybe there's a way for them as well the interoperability of the team across 
uh, sort of the tiers of single season racing will be the key thing because we've seen it happen with the formation of F1 Academy and essentially existing feeder series teams were invited to construct a team for F1 Academy. There's no reason to say this couldn't go the other way. And it's not uncommon for teams to graduate from running an F2 team to running an F1 team. Hesketh was arguably one of the greatest examples of that, where they simply went, ah, screw this, we're pissing money into the wind racing in F3, we might as well do this in F1. It's not that hugely different financially, it's just cooler. So I think there's a good argument for it. And I like your point about the idea that it would give them the chance to source their own talent and bring their own talent up. And it would be something that I think Formula One, I would like to think Formula One would look upon that favorably and say, look. It would help justify with the American races as well, have some of the feed series actually happen then, not just in Austin necessarily as a way to further kind of ingrain that if they're so insistent on having three, three Grand Prix a year there. Mm-hmm. Do you think Andretti will? join the feeder series if they don't get an F1 I don't think so because what's their incentive Mm. because there's nowhere for those drivers to go and they're not tied with any other teams as such so So, unless there's a proviso to then maybe join a couple of years later but again how long have high tech been in F2 and F3 and they're only trying it now there have been a couple of chances before but I mean there's granted there's, there's big gaps in time periods where teams can join so it's I don't think so yeah so I it's think kind of all or nothing situation but it's, a lo- it's a lot of all though and it seems a no-brainer to put both of those teams on the grid for F1 I think mm. because it's just kind of especially if you look at um, Andretti as a whole there again going back to Formula E they're on the cusp of getting a championship there at least a driver's title with Jake Dennis and you just think, yeah, in terms of value, what are you bringing? Aside from the 800 million buy-in or whatever it is that's clearly not valuable enough for some people, you've got the championship winning caliber there. You've got this kind of massive organization, not coming in as an underdog, but they've got to prove themselves. And there's that fun narrative there to bring it with you in the high tech. You've got this smaller team that's proven itself in the junior categories, wanting to play with the big boys, a little bit like Hesketh and that you were saying earlier, Jesse, it's kind of, yeah, we've done this in down here now. Let's have fun up here and let's see what we can do. So there's a lot there's a lot to love about it. I'd say the other interesting thing is that Haas managed to pull this off when they joined the sport in, what, 2015, was it? 2015-16? When they joined the sport, they were a very little-known American racing outfit. No link to Stuart Haas Racing and NASCAR. Like, you, it, there was nothing to suggest they had any right to be doing that. Whereas Andretti comes from a motorsport name a team and an outfit for racing that's proven itself beyond sort of standard single seater conference sort of where you'd think of as indycar formula one formula two formula three it's got that formula re it's got they've got an extreme e team or am i making that up in my head yeah they're tied they're tied to it it's yeah. a very long name that i can't remember all of right now but andretti is in there andretti yeah. avalanche extreme e team or something isn't it yeah so they've yeah. got this ability to prove that they can do motorsport why Formula One is holding back on them, especially when you look at the fact that they granted Haas a license to sort of join and form a team. And the, at times, absolute political disaster that Haas has proven to have been, when you look at things like the Rich Energy saga, Andretti comes into this with a team that's arguably going to be far more secure in itself. It's looking to bring with it an engine supplier which as Formula One makes steps forward to 2026's engine regulations, as it makes steps forward and keeps saying, uh, said it a lot across the weekend at Goodwood or in, across the run-up to it, saying, oh, it would be good if we simply ditched all of the electric gubbins and just used biofuel-powered naturally aspirated engines because that would be fun and smaller to package and people at at formula one seem to be fast cottoning onto that and the fact that potentially they were watching a bit of goodwood's festival of speed where they realized not just the formula one cars sebastian vettel was running on sustainable biofuels but equally a lot of the other cars up and down the field including like a 1910s fiat with a 24 liter displacement across four cylinders that spits flames every time last week or the week before i think They've done this on Sky numerous times. They've done it with all these old cars with getting them to be run on biofuels. Why is this taking so long to sink in for some people's minds on maybe this is the way forward? Yeah, if you want your carbon neutrality, if you want your sort of 
your balance, your eco-conservatism. That's the way of doing it, not mining a half hundredweight of lithium out of the ground to make Formula E cars or Formula One cars with big batteries in them and capacitors and all the heavy metals for wiring. Just make a normal engine and make it run on petrol from leftover food produce. There's certainly an argument for it to happen. And if you're to bring a new engine supplier into that, as they're doing with Audi, there's no reason, especially if Andretti bring Cadillac with them, it's going to have huge road relevance. GM would profit hugely from this idea of developing and swaying American consumption of a sustainable fuel. So there's there's a lot to be gained from it beyond just Formula One. And it's annoyingly short-sighted that Formula One keeps looking at Andretti Cadillac and going, no, we'll think of a different reason to say no. You'd think they'd want to to solidify sort of the American fan base more. It's just more marketing for them to be popular in America. So So if you talk about just money terms like that, you're like, well, you clearly are all about money these days. Here's a lot more of it that you can get quite easily. Yeah. And you've only got to look at, at Goodwood again going back to it but they were constantly plugging you should go to the las vegas grand prix have you heard we're doing a las vegas grand prix we're doing a las vegas I didn't grand know prix that. it looks really really you fun. Keep that one quiet you should go to the las vegas grand prix they were doing it at silverstone as well the huge drive and plug to get american interest in nevada? one it's near nevada it's it, it, i say near nevada it's it's in nevada um it's it yeah it's vaguely near the Nevada. Team is just, I'm I'm glad you went because I wouldn't have known about it otherwise. Yeah, the, the advertising it's and the publicity for it's been so quiet and yeah, there's this huge sort of big up. This for, is why I tune into the Undercut podcast, not just as a host but as a listener. You get these kind of things that F1 doesn't tell you about. These valuable bits of information that Formula One is going to Las Vegas and so things they don't that, want you to hear. Despite that, they won't allow an Amer- another American team onto the grid. Hey, um, speaking of the grid, or rather tyres and qualifying, there's been some interesting news about that ahead of the Hungarian Grand Prix. Yeah, just a reminder that the new qualifying format will be tested this weekend after it was meant to be in Imola. Uh, the hard tyres will be used for Q1, mediums for Q2, and softs for Q3. And... The tyre allocation will be reduced from 13 down to 11, and they will have three sets of hards, four mediums, and four softs in an aim to reduce waste. It should be interesting. I know we definitely voiced our opinions about this on the preview to the Imola Grand Prix, which I'm fairly certain we aired as well. But we obviously, didn't. Did we didn't? No, we never no. got around to it. Oh. What were everyone's opinions on this then, if that's the case? I said that. I thought it'd be quite interesting to see it work. I'm all for it. And I think it could maybe perhaps lead, hopefully, to a more mixed up grid. You think of how some teams like Mercedes struggle to get the hard tyre really going, whilst another team like Haas, maybe even Williams, can get that hard tyre going a bit quicker. Maybe they'll set more quicker times, get sort of higher up in the qualifying. And also, I think it'll be interesting how they will have to use, they'll probably have to use sort of different strategies throughout Q1, Q2, Q3, because Q1, I'd imagine you'd perhaps put a load of fuel in the car and the drivers will just keep going round doing sort of hot lap, cool lap, hot lap, cool lap, hot lap, cool lap, because there's no really incentive to sort of just put one qualifying uh, lap of fuel into the car, go out do that and then come back in mm. so i think it'll be interesting to see sort of their takes on it i guess especially early on trying to heat cycle the hards you'll want to get them up to temperature embedded in you'll have essentially a lot more track action especially in that opening stint which is where you're going to also have more drivers going wheel to wheel for brief periods of time as they try and ascertain some sort of running order around the grid i think if i recall correctly my point when we ran this in imola we'd not long come off the back of azerbaijan where Lando Norris had made it into Q3, but hadn't been able to run because he ran out of tyres. And if we've got allocated tyres and allocated sets, we're not going to be seeing that because if you make it through to the next round, you don't have to worry about having run out of that previous compound of tyre because you're onto the next compound of tyre. So it does sort of eliminate this risk of doing really, really well and then having to focus on preserving tyres for the race or 
not having enough to actually run in that final session. So there's an interesting element to that scale of it as well, this idea of there's guaranteed action from every driver that makes it through to the next bit. Unless, of course, said driver wipes out or, like Bottas, runs out of fuel because no refueling during sessions. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but they changed that rule because it had to be a new set of soft tyres, which Lando didn't have, and that's why he couldn't run. And I think they've now scrapped that. Mm. So that any you can it just has to be a soft compound tire. It can be scrubbed, yeah, it, it can be run in. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be new. Okay. So that really I essentially agree with what that. you were saying as well, Ali May, about the overall just impact that it should have on on qualifying. But I know they're doing this in Monza as well. And if they're just testing this out. I'd be interested to just for the sake of seeing it, is there any impact swapping Q1 and Q3 around in terms of Rafts and Q1 and Hards and Q3, just to see if that does anything to shake up the order a bit as well, because obviously they'll be, tr- depending on weather and conditions and whatnot, and be tricky to get the hard tyre into the window to operate it. And in Q3, that's obviously more vital. Maybe you get something a bit different there, or you get to see some really impressive data from the top drivers and they reprove that again. It'd be interesting to see that. You'd also be faced with the weird concept of qualifying times getting slower as qualifying went on, whereas we're so used to, at this point, qualifying times, generally speaking, getting faster. Although we have had races where the Q2 fastest lap time has been quicker than the Q3 fastest lap time. It's happened before, in dry conditions, certainly. And I'd like to see it reversed. I think it would be an interesting experiment, certainly. But I think F1 has possibly shied away from that after too many allegations of manufactured entertainment, especially around things such as the sprint and sprint shootout. They do want to retain some level of original racing. But as well, if they, do do, the reverse, if they do do the reverse, uh, drivers will have a, a shorter window to get that hard compound tyre working. Yeah, because your Q3 is just 15 minutes and as is Q2, but obviously Q1 is 18. So you've got that slightly longer stint just to really make the hard work as they've put it. But reverse that, all of a sudden you've got a longer time to try and get softs to stay in that window. So it comes with its own challenges reversed. It's definitely going to be interesting and it's going to mix up qualifying, which in and of itself might not be running the dry. We'll get to that as we look ahead to the Hungarian Grand Prix. And crucially, what weather can we expect? Thursday is looking to be around 31 degrees Celsius with sunny spells. It's looking like a warm start to the weekend with tyre prep work, early car setups and track walks lined up uh, uh, sort of ahead of the weekend, really. Friday is looking to be 27 degrees Celsius, but with stormy spells moving through. Early forecasts suggest storms moving through the area with warm weather. So if it does rain, it'll dry quicker than anticipated. Um, Saturday, 28 degrees Celsius and the same again with more and more intense storms, however. So we could have yet another rain-affected qualifying, which would be the third in a row, fourth in a row. Was Austria wet qualifying or was Austria dry qualifying? Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. Gonna have to quickly Google it. Um, Austria 2023 F1 qualifying. Uh, doesn't say if it was wet. That's annoying. Um, I can't remember if it was at all. No, because it was the sprint, wasn't it, for Austria? That's why. Sprint was wet. Yeah, so that was, again, the Saturday was wet. Canada's Saturday was wet. The British Saturday was wet. So this could be the fourth wet Saturday in a row. I forgot we had the sprint, which ruined my theory of always having a wet qualifying and then a dry race. But yeah, we've had we're lining up for at least another wet Saturday and a dry race. And I say a dry race, Sunday is predicted to be 30 degrees Celsius, dry and sunny. And equally, these high temperatures with no cloudy spells could lead to soaring track temperatures and promoted degradation of tyres. I haven't checked to see what the tyre deg stats are for this circuit yet, but I'm sure we will when we come to do the 
circuit guide. Um, crucially, though, when it comes to on-track battles, what should we what should we be looking out for? And Red Bull are bringing upgrades this weekend that should be worth around 0.2 seconds per lap. Which, given how close McLaren were able to run them around Silverstone, this has come hasn't come a moment too soon for the team. McLaren, however, will also be finishing up their upgrade packages. I think Lando has a few final elements still to come, while Oscar will be getting the bits that Lando got at Silverstone. Mercedes will be sniffing for a podium again, and with the Hungaroring less a circuit of high-speed high sections, they might stand a chance of reeling the papaya cars back within their reach. Further back, Ferrari will be looking to build on their mediocre form from the British Grand Prix and chase down the pack ahead. Much the same can be said for Aston Martin, who have rather fallen off the form through this point in the season, echoing something Ellie May has mentioned before, where the Silverstone-based outfits upgrades packages often tail off through the season, and given their mega start, that drop-off has been more pronounced this year. Alpine have run well here before, and it's often regarded as a circuit being akin to Monaco, a track where they've done well this season, so the French equipe might have a lot to gain from this outing. Williams have also had a good form round here before as well, and provided their car is stable and both drivers have recovered from a busy weekend of going to Wimbledon and the Festival of Speed, could do nicely around the Hungarian track. Back with the Alpha and Alpha pairing, it's returning fan favourite Danny Rick, who's got a lot of pressure on his shoulders to hit the ground running and keep pace with Yuki Tsunoda. His time through practice sessions against his young teammate will be vital to get an early steer on his form as he starts his 2023 campaign. Meanwhile, in the other Alpha, Bottas and Joe still look to be fighting their car more than fighting with other drivers. And tailing the field in my notes, at least, is Haas, who can qualify well and have done so previously here, but their dismal race pace seems them typically sees them slink backwards don't be surprised if we see them blue flagged early on which leads us neatly into our predictions and timo your prediction please it's the same as it is for most of the uh, races we've got this year i i imagine i've said a not max Verstappen at some point this year but i will have to go back and check the records for when that actually was so Again, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Max Verstappen, and I think Eddie May's pretty much chosen the same route to an argument there. Yeah, I've gone for Max Verstappen as well. I mean, well, I say he... Yeah, pretty much. That's all you need to say, isn't it? It's not a bad prediction. Um, I've gone for Charles Leclerc. I can, again, just see him feeling, I don't want to say re-boyed, but just eager to look ahead to this weekend and finally start making some progress with the Ferrari. I do have Georgia, my girlfriend, sat behind me. What's your prediction for Paul? Perez. Perez for Paul. I'll write that down. She's okay. ambitious. Uh, he's got a lot to prove, and especially now he's got the wind up his backside with uh, Danny Rick in that Alpha Towery. Podium. Timo, you're following your rule of podium from the previous race. You reckon we're going to see Norris and Hamilton up there? Yep. Which... It's not inconceivable. It's weird. I don't think my podiums are getting more accurate, but they're becoming more possible, especially with Verstappen P1 anyway. So think, Norris, if McLaren can keep going with their thing and Hamilton, he likes the Hungarian Mercedes is maybe better suited to this track than other ones. I probably shouldn't say that. Um, but it's not out of the realm possibility. And I feel like I do say that every week about the podiums now, which is good I in a way, because it means that this spice-ish. I think we're getting to a point where the repeatability of it is getting more and more intense as the field organises itself. I reckon in the final run of four races, your podium will repeat. I reckon that's where we'll see it happen. In the final run... Better again, late than never. Better late than never. You'll be proven correct, but in the final fourth race, four races of the season. Ellie May, your podium is a little bit different, actually. That's an interesting one. Tell me about it. Uh... I've gone for Verstappen win, Lando Norris second, Oscar Piastri third. Uh, kind of right or wrong? Yeah, it's that's what they should have been at Silverstone. Um, and it's really hard to predict who is going to be second and third at the minute. It seems to always be so track specific that it's difficult to really determine. So. Quite frankly, I just used my gut instinct. Just thought what the first two names that came into my head, basically. And hope for the best. It's a 
bold call, an interesting call to say as well. Um, am I thinking of the right year? I don't know. I am 2007 Hungarian Grand Prix. Here we go. Um, so you're thinking of a double McLaren sort of strong performance then is, is sort of what you're looking at. Are you saying it hasn't happened till t- since 2007? Uh, no, I was just thinking back to the last time that we had interesting performances from two McLarens powered by a Mercedes engine at the Hungarian Grand Prix, which is, of course, qualifying there with Alonso impeding Hamilton. Are, are you saying that Piastri is going to try and impede Norris through the pit, through pitting during Q3? Or is Alonso... I'm going to help him if it does, because he's still going to finish behind him on the race day. Yeah. yeah. Or is vice versa, or is for some reason Fernando Alonso going to purposely impede Lewis Hamilton just for little more than shits and giggles at this point in the career that is just essentially Alonso with anyone yeah and you have to think him leaving um, Alpine for Aston Martin is still causing issues now in the fact that De Vries has just been kicked out for Daniel Ricciardo it's still going on yeah the broader implications of Alexander Albon having appendicitis and Fernando Alonso going to Aston Martin are so broad at this point. Got a butterfly effect. Going on question time, retiring and then Alonso. Oh yeah, Seb going on question time as well. Can't forget that, which sort of triggered his idea of shit, maybe I shouldn't be an F1 driver and then leaving to open that spot. Um, So your podium, Verstappen, Norris, Piastri. I've gone for Verstappen, Alonso, Norris. I reckon it's not... He's not been on the podium for a bit, so it's about time he got back on there. He keeps threatening that he's going to return to the podium, and I reckon... He keeps threatening he's going to be on the podium at every race, and then literally as soon as he says that, he's not on the podium for the following race. Yeah. Stop saying what you're saying. It's better for you. (laughs) I'm hoping he's not going to say it, but equally... He posted a really interesting TikTok, I don't know if it was today or yesterday about it, that was sort of amping up towards it. I was like, I don't know, the guy's just living his best life at this point in time and shit posting on the internet to be that guy. Um, George- the, the Verstappen podcast will also have his two besties. He loves Alonso and Nos- Norris. He does. He does get on well with them. So that would be a very interesting Max Verstappen podcast. Georgia, your, po- your podium. Max Verstappen. Yep. Hamilton, Esteban Ocon. I forgot about my boy. <laughs> he won obviously in twenty twenty one, didn't he? So yeah, he has form around yeah. the circuit. Before. Bottas helped him a lot there. Won it before. <laughs> <laughs> Bottas helped him before, but equally, this is a circuit that is not unlike Monaco, where he did come P three in Monaco. So it's it's oh, and that was a normal race as well, wasn't it? Yeah. But equally, it would be funny if Georgia comes in and completely outscores me this weekend on points. <laughs> oh, in which case I fully support this. Exactly. There you go. Um, fastest lap, Timo, you've stuck with your regular boy, Carlos Sainz. Yep. Until he does it. Until, until it happens. Ellie made the obvious answer, Max Verstappen. Yep. No, no point sticking with something that ain't broke. I've gone for Charles Leclerc because I reckon he'll be trying to chase down Norris to get onto the podium and will inadvertently set fastest lap. Too late for Verstappen to pit with a 40-second lead to go for fastest lap. Um, Georgia, your fastest lap. George Russell. Ooh, interesting. And then we get to the wild predictions, which at the moment go two very, very different directions. And this is on Timo for writing his early, which is De Vries top 10 finish. It's on you for not letting me change it. Yeah, well, no, I just wanted to try and claw back some points against you in the overall standings. Well, you do need all the help you can get. So Precisely. I will take a top 10 finish from De Vries. And you know what? If it happens, what a weekend we've had. It would be an interesting weekend, <laughs> certainly. Um, then Ellie May and I have both gone... Um, an Alpha Tauri teammate out qualifies and out finishes the other. with each other, essentially. Yeah, I've gone for Sonoda out qualifies and out finishes Danny Rick, whereas Ellie May's gone the opposite way. She reckons Danny Rick is going to come into that seat, out qualify and out finish Yugi Sonoda. Yeah, everyone had gone for an Alpha Tauri wild prediction, so I thought, well, why didn't I join as well? And you, you, reckon... I much prefer your wild prediction happening, Ellie May. It'd be well, interesting, but uh, I don't know. You've got to back your Japanese boys. Yeah, I've got Iwasa. 
So it's fine. You can back more than one at a time. Hence the reason no. for Sonoda out-qualifying and out-finishing Ricardo. What George... is neither of us will get a point because one will out-qualify the other and then one will do it the opposite I'll, in I'll the race. race the other. Yeah. And then De Vries will finish in the top 10 and he'll be laughing in the end. Exactly. Probably Georgia for whatever she's about to predict. Oh, and De Vries. World prediction. Well, you stole my, pre- my no, I'd had mine pre- written down before I even <laughs> thought about asking you on this. Uh, Alpine outscore Ferrari. Alpine outscore Ferrari. You know what? I mean, they might if Ocon gets third. Yeah. If Ocon gets third, they might well do. That is a good point. And a perfectly wild prediction to end all this on. That is very much all we've got time for in this week's episode. Join us soon when we'll be reviewing the Hungarian Grand Prix and the feeder series action from across the weekend, uh, as well as some of the feeder series action from the Silverstone Grand Prix weekend, because I never got around to editing that podcast because I was just way too busy. Um, so make sure you've liked, subscribed, got notifications turned on to not miss anything, which will be sort of almost a bumper crop of episodes coming away, given the way things are lining up. In the meantime, though, Timo, where can the people find you? You can find me over on Is It First on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Paddock Sorority, and of course, Instagram, where there's a flurry of new content each and every week. Fantastic. Ellie May, where can the people find you? You can find me on our Instagram page, doing our graphics, or on TikTok. Well, I'm also going to be posting, hopefully, some more. We've posted a reel from Goodwood uh, with various Porsches, mainly different variations of 911s. Um, so you can check that out. And we will be posting sort of more pictures and reels of uh, Goodwood Festival of Speed on there. And we've also got a TikTok out on it. And we will be doing more TikToks going sort of more niche. Yes. So more, more, basically there's more short form video content from us appearing as we go to more and more events to film them. It's fantastic stuff, really. Um, and in the meantime, I can be found on Instagram and on Twitter as at Jesse on Cars. And also I can be found writing for Classic Car Weekly, which is all good fun and very entertaining. Uh, the next issue that will come out probably about the same time this drops will have some of my pictures and my reporting from Goodwood's Festival of Speed. So plenty of pretty pictures to look at there. Um, other than that, that's all we've got time for, and we'll be back again with a Hungarian Grand Prix review. Thank you.